everyone. This is the 22nd Comcast, and I'm Simon Wu. I'm Alex Miller. And today, joining us is Andrew Alliance. He is more commonly known as username Urea. He runs the show radio.info. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's, it's Uriah. Like, Uriah, uh, sorry. Yeah, like the soldier. Yeah, I'm good. How's everything? Thanks for inviting me, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I got I met him at uh, the, the recent HTC One launch event. Had a really good discussion about gaming and podcasts, especially. He has a podcast and a website, theshowradio.info, which I highly recommend all of you guys check out. He's got a lot of unique and really cool content on there. Thanks. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, absolutely. So first, we'll start off this podcast with our community callback and. First comment from the last podcast, Solifluxion. He says, finally, another Comcast. On the topic of Call of Duty, or World War II games in general, in Germany, they mostly cut out all the swastikas and replace them with iron crosses. They also eliminate words like Hitler, Wehrmacht, SS, and block us from changing the audio from German to English. And Nazis is always replaced with Germans, which is okay, although as a German I'd rather shoot Nazis. It would be nice if a publisher would finally grow a pair and try to release a game in its original state since games have been recognized as art and are therefore allowed to contain forbidden symbols. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for that, Soulfluxion, always jumping in uh, with comments there. We thank you for that. And as for uh, a bit of an unintentional break on that last Comcast, we're trying to get back into our routine, get them out more regularly, so hopefully that won't be an issue again. And so he kind of continues the discussion. Alex? Uh, yeah, Whiplash responds uh, saying, I've always known that Germany censors any references to Nazism, Adolf Hitler, the SS, and anything of the like, but I never knew what exactly they replaced them with. It's really interesting to hear what exactly has changed in the German versions of World War II games. And Andrew, if you could take this comment, Solifluxion's response. Uh, where we had uh, try this out. Additionally, there's yes. some cuts to keep the violence lower, especially in world and a world at war. Right, and the link that he provided, which we will put in uh, the comments after the podcast, are basically uh, a rundown, uh, photo comparisons of Call of Duty around the rest of the world and then in Germany. So picture evidence of uh, the censorship. And so and this is, this is a really cool thing. Uh, at least I think, about having a, an international side and really working through the, the medium of the internet so we get people from all over the world and get uh, unique perspectives like this. I think that's really interesting. It is. And so Michael Kirshner takes us on another uh, kind of tangent. He says, oh, so you guys talked about Call of Duty and all the awesome things that they could do or rather should do with the series, but unfortunately will never do because it's too risky. There will never be a Korean or epic World War II Call of Duty as long as there can be more modern warfares and black ops every year with Michael Bay-style prepubescent crowd blazers. So now I think the topic you should talk about on the next Comcast should be why is Call of Duty king of shooters and how can it be toppled from its throne? It doesn't seem to be as simple as, well, Call of Duty won't make a Korean War or World War II game, then someone else will. Because when someone else does make a non-Call of Duty FPS, no one ever seems to play it. And so um, that is certainly on the docket. We are preparing that as, uh, as we speak, or maybe after we're done speaking, uh, for our next podcast because 
on this podcast, our topic is actually one that Whiplash submitted to us. And so we're taking them in the order that we receive them. But we will definitely uh, discuss that. In future, yeah. But I think one of the, the interesting things, um, at least looking ahead, is one of the really big uh, non-Call of Duty FPSs coming out would be something like Destiny. And I know there's a comment later on requesting that we talk a little bit about that. But I, I wonder how much Activision would let that eat into uh, the Call of Duty sales numbers because Bungie has an exclusive deal with Activision. So are, how, is, how are they going to go head-to-head? I feel like the paradigm's a little different because Destiny is this brand-new concept in a brand-new world, a whole new character, IP, everything, and it's also more of an MMO-style action-adventure open-world a uh, consistent world sort of FPS, if one can say that. So the amount that it ties in with Call of Duty, which is this thing that's very familiar, linear campaign, familiar stories, familiar concepts, same kind of multiplayer um, kind of elements, that's, that's very different. And so I want to see, as more details about Destiny are revealed, how close it, I- it is to Call of Duty. Yeah, so uh, continuing on, Darth Skeletor responds to Michael Kirshner, uh, who simply says, Network externality, that's it. A critical mass simply attracts more weight to itself. And not only are people powerless to resist because of the, my friend already has it, uh, and competitors are powerless to compete because people will always choose the safe option because of a similar reason. In terms of Valve's big picture, I think that the Steam Box absolutely has room to de- decrease in price and become more specked out. I believe that what was shown at uh, CES was not only a boring prototype, but also a boring prototype of a computer I think they already make. With standardization and mass production, the price will go down. And all I can say to that last point is I, I hope so. I really do because I think that, that starting point of somewhere between Seven hundred and a thousand dollars for a console was absolutely ridiculous. So, hopefully, that does drop down. And in response to the the first point about network externality, so uh, for regular listeners of the uh, Comcast, I think they'll remember Simon talking about this when we were discussing online play, comparing the Xbox 360's service of Xbox Live with PlayStation's PSN. And it's it really is just that. It's because it's become such a juggernaut. At this point, it's just rolling and rolling, and it's got its own gravity, and it just draws people in year after year. And unless there's a concerted effort and something more than just these online petitions that everybody ignores, there's really nothing will change about it because it keeps making the money. That's one of my favorite uh, business buzzwords next to synergistically leveraging social media platforms and presence, I think, and also doubling down. Those are three very... I think overused at sometimes and overquoted in especially gaming and technology industry as a whole. So there you go, guys. There's uh, your Simon business lesson of the day. Yes, just say those three things in any kind of business meetings and people will instantly be enthralled. And so, Andrew, if you could take this next comment. Okay, so here's my thoughts on the whole we don't want michael bay call of duty game situation it seems like most people are in agreement with this yet how can we complain when we are partly to blame for it being this way year after year 
we all go out and buy the new Call of Duty and help Activision break new records. Think about how Activision sees this. They think, oh, based on sales, fans love this ridiculous, over-the-top BS. Let's give them even more next time. The only way to stop this trend is to stop buying the new game. But we don't do that. So, I hate to say it, but things probably won't be changing anytime soon. This is exactly what I was talking about. It's just people, year after year, saying, oh, God, I'm really just fed up with Call of Duty. Oh, there's a new Call of Duty coming out. Oh, wow, multiplayer looks pretty cool. Right. Oh, my friends have that. Yeah, so, okay, so I love Call of Duty. Okay, it's one of my favorite games right now. Um, it is my bread and butter, and, and I really do not mind playing it. I, I think it, it offers a system that works, especially if you're a shooter fan. Um, in terms of uh, the only challenge that I had with Call of Duty was Black Ops, the first one. I don't think their multiplayer was that great. But um, when you look at uh, Treyarch's uh, current title, Black Ops 2, and even uh, Infinity Ward's previous title or current, which is Modern Warfare 3, those two games you know, did really, really well uh, in terms of e- even the multiplayer component and just uh, sheer enjoyment if you like the FPS uh, genre. Um, they've done a lot of things well. So um, I guess... I really enjoy those games. Yeah, and I mean, they they definitely have, and especially in terms of multiplayer, they really they have pioneered the way in a lot of things like perks, uh, class you know class selection, um, loadouts, things like that. But I think it's a lot of people are are more frustrated when it comes to the single player side of the game, where a lot of people are are I mean, obviously a lot of people are very focused on multiplayer and they just go straight to that when they buy the game. But there are, uh, I think, a fair number of gamers who go in and enjoy the campaign and think any game really needs to be able to stand on its single player, just separate from its multiplayer. And when it comes to that, Call of Duty has just gotten, I think, more and more ridiculous. I think we can all agree in terms of the scenarios and the characters and just what's going on from game to game. Right, and I think our next comment from Disgruntled Avians sort of addresses that, and we can maybe discuss the conversation in full after reading his comment, because that'll, that's the end of this Call of Duty discussion. And so he says, a couple things, because I haven't been on in forever. Firstly, it is very interesting to see what censorship is like in Germany. Like Whiplash, that's always something that has intrigued me. Secondly, in regards to the big picture mode, I think it is far more for casual gamers. I personally love PC gaming, and on my 32-inch monitor on my desk, I feel like I'm already getting a fairly big picture. That being said, I would love to see how Valve might implement a mouse and keyboard co-op system by having two proprietary sets of controls tie together and register with the Steam box separately. In regards to Call of Duty, Captain Crunk and Darth Skeletor are both right. Network externality does loop ever-increasing numbers of people into the same thing for convenience and bandwagoning reasons. But most of this is driven by casual gamers who pick up another COD by virtue of the fact that it's the biggest thing, or by little kids who are a bundle of energy after racing through the campaign and saving the world and generally more excitable with cheap tricks. Taking that in mind, I think this podcast caters to a very niche crowd. Those of us who are hardcore gamers and also value intelligent thought, discussion, and innovation in the gaming industry. And that's why we, although we, being the people who have commented, feel the status quo is woefully inadequate, 
are fairly united in this line of thinking, there are far more of us out there who don't. And uh, disgruntled avians, um, a very flattering view of the podcast as a circle of intellectuals here, of course, as we all are. I'll and take that any day. Absolutely. And also, he is right that most people are perfectly fine with the latest, biggest titles. They don't delve into sort of the indie scene or these smaller games that are not as well known because for them, it might be, they might have a budget allotted for three games a year, right? They don't play that often, but when they do, they just get the next biggest thing. And it's that more than anything else, really, that drives Call of Duty forward. So, any final thoughts on this? Uh, I guess uh, I'll agree with you with the, um, a lot of gamers don't necessarily look at the indie scene. Uh, for example, one of the games that recently came out was um, uh, Phantom Breaker Battlegrounds, which is a great title, uh, beat-em-up, uh, four-player arcade title uh, that um, that was really exciting. You know, games like that, they get passed over over games like the big games that I'm sure you guys will talk about soon uh, that are coming out uh, between March and April. Um, and you have um, Call of Duty comes out um, every fall, winter, if you will. Uh, and everybody gets excited about that because the studios are going back and forth to release the titles. And um, they do offer instant gratification. You know, it's, it's not really hard to play the game once you figure out a weapon that works for you. So um, those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, and one final thing I'd like to mention that also is part of the network externality argument uh, that I didn't see covered here, but is really important is uh, marketing and advertising. It is tremendous for Call of Duty when they just blanket the airwaves, all of the biggest events. They have 30-second to a minute teasers, pressers. They've got all the quotes from all the biggest game review sites out there saying 9.9 .9 out of 10, this is the greatest thing ever. And they also have the spots with um, more and more celebrities who are like Call of Duty or like they're shooting in Warzone while Rolling Stones plays in the background, that sort of thing. And so the, the marketing budget is tremendous and compounding that, it's basically uh, Activision's able to spend ever-increasing amounts on this because they're getting ever-increasing revenue. So how a new you know, developer breaks onto the scene, it just becomes harder and harder. Yeah, Simon, I think uh, we talked about something similar to this last time uh, John was on the podcast where I mentioned that it's getting to the point now where these major AAA titles have budgets that, you know, $30 million for a game, whatever, just huge budgets, and then they're doing the same again in marketing. It's getting to the point where they're spending just as much marketing the game as developing it. Yeah, so... That um, will continue this discussion probably on the next podcast where we will try and address it uh, in more depth, and that'll be our sole focus. But yeah, moving on, we now have the short takes dating from the 15th of February, also known as Cheap Candy Day. Um, Whiplash starts us off saying, I hope you discuss Destiny on a future podcast seeing as the details have already spilled on the world. From what I've seen from Destiny, it looks incredible. Everything they've said about the world interaction and the mythos of the game, 
universe makes me want to pre-order it right now. And then he later says, edit. Apparently several major retailers are already taking pre-orders for Destiny. Uh, probably a good idea on their part. And yeah, we can discuss this a little more in depth right now, I think, because Destiny, new Bungie title, in partnership with Activision, cross-platform, we've already seen part of it. They've done teasers and the traditional Bungie Vidox about how they're making it. And right now the premise, Earth, after some cataclysmic events, you're on Earth trying to survive in a brave new world type thing. And the genre is completely groundbreaking. We've alluded to it a little bit uh, earlier in the Call of Duty segment, but um, kind of consistent world, sort of like DayZ, where the world is always continuing around you and you sort of drop in and drop out whenever you play but it's also first-person shooter, open-world action. And so, any any thoughts on that? I well, I mean, I'll... No, go ahead. Okay, well, all, all I was going to say was, uh, I mean, very excited by it. I do... I I very much like these these sci-fi worlds, and I'm generally someone who buys into them, just like you are, Simon, and reads all this backstory. And just from that short little Vidoc that, just, uh, that Bungie put out about Destiny... I'm already really interested, and I think that just that speaks to Bungie as a company and how they can draw people in with something like that. And it really looks like they've they've flushed out the world, and that's something we want to see as gamers. Is just a really thoroughly made, well crafted uh, environment for us to basically play around in. Right. So they they apparently, as they've already mentioned, they have the entire team working on this ten year ever growing world. Right. Um, and definitely uh, fans of sci-fi. I mean, it's an instant buy because I love Halo. So as soon as I saw exactly what they were doing, even with the videos and some of the things that they showed at the uh, PS4 reveal recently, uh, it's definitely exciting and and hope to definitely see it on uh, a PS4, right? And definitely uh, PS3 and, and Xbox. Those are the main platforms they have them on, right? Yeah, I think... Um Actually, those those sites that Whiplash mentioned where they're taking pre-orders, they originally only had it for PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, but I think that when they first announced it, it was like a week before the PS4 announcement, so I'm pretty sure now on the site they're also taking pre-orders for uh, the PlayStation 4. And presumably the next Xbox when it's announced and launched. Um, and one of the interesting things that I want to point out is when we get to the ps4 week is the ex some sort of exclusive that the ps4 will get um so we'll get to there momentarily um but yeah darth skeletor is uh, the next commenter saying when valve actually got rid of all of these people i think that's actually incredibly positive with the obvious exception of the people that lost their jobs at a really cool company i don't think valve is ridicu ridiculously irrational like that there's a very good reason for this and this is just uh, in reference to a story a couple weeks ago about uh, what seems to amount to a rather large uh, cleansing in terms of employees at Valve, including some of the people who were involved with a lot of the uh, the hardware side things at uh, at Steam. And Andrew, the next comment. Sure. 
Having posted this comment, uh, this is coming from Disgruntled Davians. Did I say that right? Disgruntled Avians. So Disgruntled Avians. Yeah, gotcha. a, play, a play on Angry Birds. People, I guess, because there's no spacing, it most people don't figure it out for a while. He did better than I did the first time I read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. Uh, having uh, posted this comment after the PS4 announcement, I can see now that PS4 actually did quite well in saying that they were not everything that is bad and rumors thus far about the next Xbox. Whether or not the next Xbox is actually any of these things is irrelevant. Uh, PS4 has complete control of the message right now as Microsoft continues their strict radio silence until E3. Yeah, now this is in reference to certain rumors that, uh, well, a couple things really, that the next Xbox would require an always present internet connection, uh, that it wouldn't have disk trace, things like that. And in their reveal, Sony made sure to explicitly say, we have a disk tray and you will not be required to be connected all the time. Yeah, and that's actually a perfect segue into the short takes ending week of February 22nd because this was our gigantic PS4 fest where we did everything relating to the launch event. We had, I think, 10 articles and five contributors this week, which was absolutely insane. So that's the bi- definitely the biggest the short takes I think we'll ever get. And well, probably- Simon, we uh, we have the Xbox announcement apparently coming out April 4th, so never say never. I think it'll probably rival it in size, maybe top it by just a little, but I think this is a pretty big peak. So starting off with Darth Skeletor who says, holy shit, that was a lot of material to go through. If memory serves me correctly, this is the first time you've had a panel of five and what an impressive week to get all that contribution on, too. I think that you guys are exactly right that Sony just needed to get the ball rolling on the product before Microsoft, and that most of this uncertainty and the negative aspects will, so far will resolve themselves by E3. Yeah, and I mean, I think in regards to uh, all our panelists, or I guess we're calling them panelists now, our contributors, uh, I'd just like to, first of all, say thank you to all you guys for writing in. This is just something that we've been doing over the last several weeks to a month is just cycling in a couple different people, just liking to hear a couple different voices, different views and perspectives on things. And we were just we were excited to get everybody in on this because, as Simon said, this was probably one of the biggest weeks of news that we've covered so far. Yeah, next comment comes from uh, Whiplash's response to Darth Skeletor. Uh, who just confirms that if memory serves me correctly, this is the first time you've had a panelist of five, and he says, you are in fact correct. I was surprised that I got to participate in this. And yeah, Thanks again, Whiplash, for that. Like I said, we're just happy to uh, get a bunch of writers on and get a bunch of different uh, views and perspectives on things. Yeah, Madras says, hmm, not really looking forward to this PS4. But look on the bright side, the PS3 will probably get a whole lot cheaper. And that is true. Now, Sony seems to be thus far continuing their tradition of continuing the previous console, making it cheaper, having several years of cross-platform games with the the next-gen console while just continuing to make it cheaper. Maybe not so much innovation on the software side as most of that energy and effort 
goes to the PS4. We saw that with the PS2 for a very, very long time. And by the end of its life cycle, they released another PS2 even when the PS3 was kind of on sale, which made it, I think, wafer thin almost. You can take a look at the, the picture of that last PS2. And so I think I can expect the same thing uh, with the PS3. I just saw another ad today, actually. They were talking about the new blue and red PS3 consoles. Exactly, yeah. I, was, I saw that, and it's actually interesting because I mean, we talked about that uh, a couple weeks ago. Actually, it might have been over a month now uh, where we were talking about how Sony is just releasing a new uh, special edition of their console. Yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, we're going to move on to our final commenter for this massive outpouring, which is that's, which is disgruntled avian saying that's a lot of articles and commenters. On the PS4, I think that software will rule the day this time for PS4. All these exclusives were trotted out and shown off, and especially Destiny, which I think really stole the show for me, despite being a cross-platform game, will have exclusive content for the PS4. That's just like Assassin's Creed for the last generation. The PS3 always had some extra DLC or tie-in content that the Xbox didn't. I think that if current trends hold and Microsoft doesn't debunk some of these serious rumors or fight back with some very serious games of their own, I'm not afraid to say it, but the Xbox might then be just for the services in my house and the PS4 for serious gaming. Yeah, I mean, all I, all I would say in response to that is you know, everybody needs to settle down a little bit. PS4 has got their punch in, but Microsoft hasn't responded yet. So it's very easy to say, oh, now Microsoft is uh, down and out, but they haven't even uh, said what they're going to be including in their console what exclusive titles they might have. So as ever, I feel like I'm the one sort of sitting back and saying, just wait, just be patient. But I think we really do just need to wait and see what happens once everything's really out in the air. And in terms of services, Microsoft is still far and away leading that race against Sony in terms of the services they can provide on their console. So the PS4 still has a lot of catching up to do in that area. But it is true that in terms of game-exclusive content, the, uh, the the PlayStation has done very well lately. Yeah, and we see already a firing back this week on the short takes, uh, this most recent week, where Microsoft and EA might be doing a press conference together to announce something. So this could be a possible response to Sony and Activision partnering together doing this Destiny-exclusive content. So we will see. And speaking of the short takes from this week. Yeah, uh, this is just dating from uh, the 1st of March. Millennium Master 18 writes, Well, well, EA versus Activision. Both companies have good developing teams that are stifled by the long, dead, rotting corpse of the, quote, lazy business model. You know, the one that sums up to more money, less work intelligent if you're being selfish yet by definition a company has to also serve society myself being a righteous person and that in parentheses yeah right i can't sincerely extend a shred of interest for the quote positive contributions made by either one of them since the amount of shit that covers them nowadays in uh, is particularly more noticeable a pity 
since their developers can come up with some pretty innovative ideas, I suppose. Do I need to say that EA and Microsoft are a match made in financial ripoff heaven? No? All right, moving on. And I guess yeah, we've sort of we've talked about that, and it, it really is just unfortunate that it's coming down to less work, more money, just maximizing profits with as little work as possible, and hopefully we'll see a turnaround in that. But as he says, we'll move on now to the Mindshare that I wrote recently put out, and it was talking about the future of Nintendo, and just summing up, it was wondering where Nintendo goes from here, what with the, I guess you could say lackluster, or not as not as good, yeah, not as impressive uh, launch of the Wii U as they might have expected, and I made the argument that maybe in the next console generation, or even before this one is done, they forgo the console route and just uh, switch to uh, software only. But uh, the first comment, this one coming from our Facebook page, is from Jackson Sinnenberg, who writes, I object to the title, Nostalgia Blinded Gamers. Is it so wrong to enjoy a game series? Is it so unforgivable of me to enjoy the Metroid series? No, sir, I would say that is in no way a bad thing. But what I would say is look at what Nintendo generally puts out as their big hits for their consoles. It's usually like a new Mario game, a new Legend of Zelda game, maybe a, a new Metroid game. And I'm actually I'm glad you bring that up because they're... <laughs> been looking for uh, a good one of those lately. Haven't seen one in a while. But when you're looking at these games, there's nothing really that sounds like, oh, wow, I can't believe they're doing that in a game. That's incredible. Look what they're now adding to the table. It's, oh, look, Mario. He's jumping somewhere new this time. Or Zelda, he's, like, Link has new powers. And so I would I would think if you're you're looking to see new innovation and we're not seeing that as much from Nintendo lately. So generally the only selling point for their games is wow, I remember when this was really fun when I was little. I bet the newer version with newer graphics on a new system would be pretty cool too. And I mean I, I completely count myself amongst that group of as I wrote nostalgia blinded gamers. So I'm I'm there with you, and I apologize if it meant any offense. Didn't mean uh, to cause any whatsoever, but I do think there is something there that Nintendo does appeal to a group of people who remember a better day for Nintendo. But uh, Mr. Hat gives the next comment from uh, Wiki Game Guide saying, "Give me Rome Two now, Sega, please, pretty please." And uh, I would just have to completely agree with that statement because I very much want that game, especially after the recent trailer in the Battle of Tudenburg Forest. Yeah, and uh, Andrew, if you could take the next one, and I'd also like to hear your thoughts on kind of the opinion that Alex gave that instead of having this huge loss-making console arm, that Nintendo should simply drop that and make pure software based on franchises that have been proved very popular and have a lot of, I guess, nostalgia, a lot of heritage background imbued in them, and should they make it for not only other consoles, but especially for mobile platforms where people, I think, would absolutely eat it up to 
um, be able to play the old Pokemon on, you know, or Zelda on their iPhone or iPad or Android I mean, phone. people already jailbreak their iPhones to get emulators. And if you could offer a free way to do that, then people would just jump on board because that's a lot easier. Right, if they just charge, you know, five ninety nine for a Game Boy emulator and then maybe every game costs two dollars, I can see that taking off immensely. So, uh, Andrew, your thoughts? My thoughts on that, uh, I love Nintendo. Um, I think they've done fantastic the last 25 plus years. Uh, I guess I'll say, speak personally of my life, uh, watching them uh, grow with even, you know, the games that we come to love, whether it's Zelda, Mario, uh, things of that nature. Uh, if they decided to uh, expand and actually uh, start making their stuff multi-plat, which I doubt they will do that, um, because they want to keep those IPs to themselves, I think that'd be great. Uh, even uh, bringing it to uh, possibly a Vita, which is which probably never happened. But um, I would love to see them expand. In terms of uh, competing, uh, they're they're not necessarily competing even a hardware uh, race because uh, since the hardware for uh, Sony and and the Xbox are getting ready to get upgraded, uh, now they're only current gen uh, with their stuff. Um, but uh, Nintendo. Um, a lot of us started with Nintendo, um, you know, not so. So just the fact that we have a history with them, I think is absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, should they, you know, cut down on some of the things that they do with uh, like uh, special controllers and things of that nature? I would I would say that it would be nice to just bring out solid games um, and even have more uh, individuals, you know, put out the games on their system. But uh, we already know what to expect from them. Uh, it's either going to be, you know, a Mario game or a Zelda game or, you know, anything of those types for every system they come out. Now, if they decided to go software only, you know, I'd feel kind of, you know, a little sad because I, although I don't own their current hardware, whether it's a Wii U or a Wii, I appreciate it when I visit someone who actually does. Um, so uh, I guess all in all, I think... Um, they're going to stick to their guns, and their guns may not necessarily make them as much money as they could be making uh, when you compare it to either Sony or, or Xbox. But at the same time, um, you know, they're, they're still a player in the game. You know what I mean? No, I, I, definitely, I definitely do think they're a player. My only concern was uh, the point of business, obviously, is to make money. And I, I do very much respect Nintendo for taking the route of doing what they want to do and not just seeking to maximize profits. But what we've seen lately is that they've, they've, they're really taking a hit in the console market. And it's just, it, it is quite difficult for them. And I think the, the points you made are very, sim- very similar, very in line with what I was saying. Just I think if you put out a quality console with quality games, people will buy it and play it. Now, if you want to do your more gimmicky sort of things that you would like to incorporate into games, by all means, go for it. You, you can look at what uh, Microsoft is doing with Kinect and trying to integrate that into games. That can be fun. It can be interesting. It can also be annoying. But at the end of the day, it's not crucial and critical to playing games on that platform. Right. Um, so that was... A lot of good discussion. And uh, Andrew, if you could take Millennium Master's comment on this situation. 
right. since a while now, I've been thinking that if Nintendo wants to cut its huge losses due to the dated Wii U's design, then they should pull it from the shelves and wait the next generation of consoles out. After all, they still got some edge on the portable market. Perhaps they should make something that makes the Vita and the other console devices look inept in comparison. Nintendo wants to be different? I've got a suggestion. How about toning down on the gimmicks a bit? Wiimote, 3DS, whatever screen and Wii U controller has, it's a bit too much, don't you think? A funny thought, should Nintendo ever pander seriously to the hardware gamers and whichever future they get? Would they start making M-rated Nintendo titles? I, for one, would love to see an M-rated Legend of Zelda. Insert Link finally gets a late joke here, okay? Uh, if only for the violence and the more serious tone it could achieve. Yeah, and this is exactly in line with uh, actually the comment that prompted the... Uh uh, I'll admit, maybe snide remark about nostalgia blinded gamers. It was it was just this that Nintendo, in a way, needs to grow up and understand that there is an entire market out there of people who are interested in playing games that are not cut off in terms of emotional development at the age of ten or eleven. And this is one of the examples I gave. Is can you imagine how interesting and really awesome a game like The Legend of Zelda? in a similar format to, uh, say, Skyrim. I think that would be really fun. Yeah, and so moving on here, we see oops, that uh, Disgruntled Avians says, The way I see it, Nintendo won't move radically in any new direction. Why? Because of the culture of the company and, by proxy, Japanese culture as a whole. They are very reluctant to give up something that they have created, since they probably regard it as a national achievement. Moreover, they are entirely centered around this one, uh, okay, two, products, and the only real successful software are a clutch of games that they themselves came up with. That engenders a sort of pride and perhaps hubris that won't go away easily. Sony, despite being another Japanese com company, is fundamentally different. They are far more the cosmopolitan and modern type of company because their business is so much larger and covers so many more market segments than just games. The less CEO was an Englishman for crying out loud. In the same way that robots are prevalent in Japan so they don't have to bring in Southeast Asian maids and unskilled workers, well, they could make untold fortunes by releasing all of their major franchises on the App Store and Steam. They simply will not. It is possible that a severe financial quarter could perhaps jar them to rethink this policy, but to do so would be to admit that their console is fundamentally flawed and a failure. That might be the hardest thing of all. And I, I completely understand that, and that's part of the reason why I accepted that the Wii U would probably sit on the sidelines in this, this generation, continue to put out games and still be there, but just not be as relevant as the other two major consoles. But I think the more of my my argument was directed towards the next generation after this upcoming generation is where do they go after it? What happens then? And if the Wii U continues to not be the success they envisioned, uh, I wonder if it, this is a choice that Nintendo will be able to make. Is it Will they be forced into making it rather than being able to say, okay, this is the direction we want to go in? 
So uh, next we have a comment from uh, the esteemed John Tarr. I'll use his short title in lieu of Simon's incredibly ridiculously long one. Uh, But he writes, I think Nintendo's inevitable failure comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of how everybody plays games these days. Sony's PlayStation 4 has a goddamn share button built into the controller and live streaming, while Nintendo barely has functional multiplayer, let alone first-party games based around multiplayer. Uh, And now he goes into uh, a couple of uh, quotes from the article where he then responds to them. So, in quotes, The N64 was the last unequivocal success that, uh, that Nintendo has had in the home console market. And he says, What about the Wii? Your definition of success is very different from Nintendo's. Plus, the Wii had the Wii Fit peripheral, which was a huge success as well. And I'll just uh, insert a short little reply there. In terms of uh, my definition of success, I think I I sort of wrote it out in the Mindshare where, yes, it's true, uh, we sold incredibly well. There were consoles in everybody's house, basically, and it's because they had that very, very low price point which meant that you could justify buying it on a whim. But it's one of those consoles that everybody agrees you buy and then would almost never play. And in a market where you lose money on the console and then make it back on selling games, if you're not selling games, it can't be defined as a success. So that's at least where I'm coming from there. And that's why I wrote unequivocal success, because I think it's definitely a partial success, but not a, a full success there. Uh, and next, the next uh, bit of the article he quotes is, both of those devices are great with great games, but the games they are designed for are not the kind to be played on a transatlantic flight or a family road trip. And he, he responds, true, but I can't listen to podcasts or music while playing a DS game. That's true, but you will have your phone with you because you always have your phone with you. So what I'm saying there is if, you know, if you're taking a shit, if you're on the toilet, you're going to be playing a game on your phone probably because you'll have it with you. But if you're going on a long car trip, if you're doing something where you're just sitting down and you can plan and bring a DS, then you, a DS is much better to play games on and is much more uh, enthralling and, and capturing than a phone is. And if you want to listen to music or podcasts while you're playing that game, you have that option because your phone is with you too. And his final quote is, that's like Ford trying to pass off a Hummer as a brand new car this year. And then he says, GM owned Hummer. And that is true, just in the way that uh, Microsoft owned the Xbox 360, but Nintendo is now trying to pass off similar stats as a new console. So that's, that's what I was saying there. Right. Um, and so Disgruntled Avians has a pretty comprehensive and um, well-thought-out response. He says... Uh, at John Tar, once again, part of the cultural divide. Japanese are far more interested in very expansive single-player modes, and gaming for them is an individual activity, not a social or communal one. Whereas Americans can get behind achievements because they make single-player competitive to a certain extent, and Sony only copied with a much-reduced concept of trophies afterwards, responding to the desires of the American market. Owning, owing to what I believe is their more cosmopolitan nature, mentioned above. Nintendo here, again, is the far more conservative and traditional Japanese company in this regard. Their absolute single-mindedness now only slightly breaking down, and still very reluctantly. They did not include DVD playback, 
and are very slowly adding in only the most well-known streaming services. The fact that the DS doesn't include obvious missing features such as podcasts and music is further evidence for this. Yeah, and I think I think this cultural divide that uh, that he mentions is it really is the the heart of the issue for Nintendo because they are existing in a, a global marketplace where they're trying to sell their products around the world to a variety of different people. If they're sort of if they're stuck in this one mindset that's very relevant to their one culture, but is less so to large parts of the rest of the world, you know, America, Europe, etc. That's going to be trouble for them going forwards. And I think that's that's one of the things where if they were to make games and leave out the console bit, then they could focus on the kind of games they want to make, be they single player in a very similar way to like Square Enix, where they make these Final Fantasy games. And those sell very well. By the way, Whiplash, there you go. There's your shout out for uh, your favorite series. But I think Nintendo could do very well doing that, you know, even if they forego the console. Exactly. And so Dar Skeletor, or no, Whiplash himself, uh, replies saying, Nintendo has always been one of those companies that invest in one thing and sticks to it very closely. When its competition, Sony, Microsoft, Valve, Apple, have multiple divisions where they can restock their efforts if a situation arises. Not only that, but there are several publishers and developers that are in the same way now. For example, Epic is not only a developing firm, but also a tech company, licensing their Unreal Engine to companies and even universities that want to render and develop software. Square Enix isn't just a gaming firm. It also has a manga-anime publishing division called Gang Gang Comics. Two of their most popular shows, Soul Eater and Full Metal Alchemist, air every Sunday on Toonami right now. EA and Activision are starting the trudge towards mobile, as opposed to solely publishing for home consoles in the PC market. Gaming companies have, for the longest time, realized that if they are only focusing on one thing, in this case, gaming, it will bring about their demise. And uh, this is something that we've talked about on the podcast uh, several times. The fact that Nintendo is at a great disadvantage when it comes to how losses and financial situations affect them far more than the far bigger ships of uh, Sony and Microsoft, right? Gaming is a pittance for Microsoft when compared to their main divisions, Windows, Office, SharePoint, Exchange Server, so on and so forth. I won't go and list the whole gamut, but it's just a tiny part of everything they do. Same thing with Sony. Sony makes TVs, they make cameras, they make computers, tablets, smartphones, surround sound systems if we really want to get into it. Everything and anything, and the PS3 is just one component of it. But Nintendo, what do they have? They have games. They have the Wii U and then the 3DS. Those are their divisions, and that's it. And so if they take a loss, that entire company just takes that same loss. Whereas if the Xbox division takes repeated losses of billions of dollars, which we saw from Microsoft. Microsoft Barely affected their stock price, barely affected the company's revenues. They still continued to put out record profits each year because other things held up. Yeah, I mean, it's just, at the end of the day, when Nintendo gets punched, they feel it a lot more than, say, Sony or Microsoft do. And that's why putting themselves out there 
with the console is, you know, to continue this analogy, it's just asking to be punched in that way. Whereas if they decided we'll go a different direction, I think it would protect them financially and I think they would do better as a company. Yeah. So uh, next, we ha- now we have Darth Skeletor replying to Whiplash saying, you're absolutely right. And it's not just in gaming. Nokia and BlackBerry are about to get the death blow from giant conglomerates like Apple and Samsung. And in gaming, Nintendo is that company without anything else to back themselves up. Simon and Alex have mentioned this is a good uh, mentioned this a good several times on the podcast, and I think that Alex's method in particular works to try and leverage that one business to its maximum extent. Cut off the extremely costly side of hardware, just like IBM did, and what Netflix tried and failed to do, and focus on software for new and rising platforms. Tying into what Disgruntled Avians is talking about in culture, there's been a general decline in Japanese tech companies overall. And uh, he finishes up that comment with a link, which we will include uh, with the podcast. But, I mean, this is exactly right. It's just, it's streamlining and making it more effective. And like I said before, reducing your ability to really to get punched because they just, they can't take repeated beatings in the same way the larger companies can. Yeah, and so that concludes our entire uh, community callback segment. And so... We're going to say, if, as always, if you want to get in contact with us, um, comment below or use the Contact Us form on our website, GameInsight.org. Send us an email, game-insight at outlook.com. Like us on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash Productions, I believe. Um, you can get in touch with me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash WGG underscore SWU. Alex at WGG underscore R-A-M. In addition, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a review, so on and so forth. All right, guys, so we've had a great discussion here. Really enjoyed it. Uh, Unfortunately, Andrew, you have to leave us a little bit early, um, but we want to thank you for coming on. You had a lot of great contributions and we had some great discussion really added to that. And so... Where can people find you on the internet to, to get more of this uh, intelligent discussion about gaming? Oh, well, first off, I just want to say thank you for having me. And I think uh, you guys are doing an absolutely fantastic job with your show. I definitely like what you guys are doing. Um, as far as uh, the show radio, you can find the show radio on theshowradio.info. And as far as the Twitter, uh, that would be Uriah, which is U-R-I-Y-Y-A. Great. And so you have on your website a podcast, news, reviews, interviews, just the whole gamut of things that people can take a look at and uh, read, listen to, watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Good stuff over there. Uh, but definitely um, appreciate you guys um, inviting me on your show. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming out. Yeah, and so just a final reminder um, – Andrew's podcast can be found on iTunes and Zune. We highly recommend that you subscribe and take a listen. I have been listening to the past few recently. Um, great discussion, great thoughts that he presents there. So yeah, thank you, and Andrew. We'll, for- uh, yeah, we'll make sure and include those links uh, with the podcast. So yeah, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, guys. All right, see you later. All right, and so now it's time for our Dixical segment where we talk about what we've been doing in gaming since the last podcast. Alex? Well, I've, uh, I've been 
playing as ever uh, some Total War. I've been playing Empire this time, trying a game I haven't played in a while. Obviously more faster than light, but uh, in a new turn of events, I've uh, been trying something a little different uh, for the first time, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but uh, I've had my first experience playing Counter-Strike, so I've been playing that with some friends now in a, in a little LAN format, and it's it's been very entertaining so far, so Global Offensive, it's uh, it's been a very fun game. All right, and I actually recently played the terrible, terrible tragedy known as Aliens Colonial Marines, uh, but... But, but, but before you all kill me for that, I must say that first, it was tempered by the fact that this was at an event sponsored by Monster Energy, where we got all the monster that we could drink. There were a bunch of guys there, we're just having a good time talking, and there was Aliens Colonial Marines. Sort of like is, a, a side note, but yeah, uh, Simon, we definitely... Definitely need to include this picture that you sent me where you're not joking when you say it was crates upon crates upon crates of monster energy. It was ridiculous. They like 10 or so cases of, I think, 5 by 6 of monster, and there was just so much there. We have so much left. Um, I brought back like 18 cans, and that was still not even close to how much was still left over. Um in addition to Aliens Colonial Marines, I have also started playing XCOM Enemy Unknown, which is that reboot of that previously popular series. It's been a ton of fun. Um, Alex, you died while trying to prevent alien abductions in Chicago. So I'm I, sorry, sir. I did my best. Given that all she's got, Captain. But uh, yeah, you didn't make it very far. So we'll see how the rest of my squad does. Yeah, rats. You, know, you just have to, you know, re-sign me or something. But, uh, yeah, no, I've really I've looked into that game. It looks like it's a ton of fun, and I've been meaning to uh, get my hands on it. So maybe I'll, I'll give it a try. All right. And so we'll be moving on now to our first, uh, I guess, our topic for this podcast, which is Mass Effect 3 revisited again. Uh second time, deja vu, so whatever. And this is a topic sent to us by Whiplash. And so essentially it's a it's tangentially related to the last topic he sent us about video game storytelling. More specifically this time, a revisiting of the ending of Mass Effect 3. And he linked to us a 30-minute exposition on YouTube of him having a sort of discussion with his brother, mostly it's his brother talking and explicating his views on uh, the ending to Mass Effect 3, but since we're more about the discussion, I listened to it and basically wrote up a quick summary, which I think captures the key points. Um, so he opens by saying that the Reapers have continued the cycle of fostering life, then eliminating it for countless millennia. The cycle has repeated itself thousands of times, and of course, humanity in its usual hubris decides that the buck stops here. Yeah, and then it, it continues saying the Crucible was a, a sort of last resort against the Reapers that drove them back into dark space and destroyed all the mass relays and therefore intergalactic travel. The Reapers are near omniscient and realize that humanity would be the first ones to finish the Crucible because they were able to uh, to gather the resources and were intelligent enough to do so. 
And so thus, the Reaper attack on Earth was a total ruse. It gathered all the combined forces of the galaxy in the Sol system so that everyone was stuck there after the Crucible fired. All the military assets of each species uh, is here with no way of getting back, and the Sol system has few resources as it is. Now that all the home systems are relatively undefended, the Reapers can stroll through and destroy all the species. Given how much firepower was needed to take down one middle-sized Reaper, Sovereign, how much would be needed for countless thousands? That's what the ending told us. There would never be a happy ending, whether they discover the Reapers or not. This ending is realistic. Gamers often complain about happy endings, and they counterintuitively complained here as well. Then people wonder what the, point of the, uh, what the point was of having all of your choices compound and roll over from game to game. It was more to do with making you attached to your character and providing increased immersion. Each ending was the same because you're screwed in every case, regardless. The Protheans were far and away better than humanity, and even they couldn't stop the Reapers. Never in the game was it said or implied that we would be able to stop the Reapers. Shepard merely said that either we fight and somehow come out still alive, or we sit around and die. If humanity didn't pull it off, it would not be realistic. This might not be comfortable for most gamers, but it breaks the mold and gives you something new. Really quickly, it's if humanity did pull it off... Did pull it off, my, sorry. It would not be realistic. Yeah, and so he then sum- summarizes the indoctrination theory. We're not even going to open that can of worms again. Uh, what if he just re-dreamed that last section because he was knocked the fuck out and buried by rubble? That's what happens when you have the best ending. That would explain why Joker left him, the Crucible was fired by someone else, and Shepard just imagined the three choices. That's the reason the outcome is always the same. Also, there's no conceivable way for Shepard to fall that far and survive. Mass Effect 4 is coming. Shepard won't be the character and it will not tie into the events we've seen. Instead, it will move the story forward. He then asks about the controversy over Aquarian's face, which was just a slightly doctored stock photo. The answer is that who are the gamers to say what the Aquarian should look like? If you're annoyed by it, you didn't make the game, so stop. If they had no effort, they could have just taken a picture of Marvin the Martian and put it there. And he concludes pretty much with saying that all Bioware saw with the extended cut DLC, their only rationale and motivation for putting out was a need to make more money with future installments by addressing the fans' concerns to try and turn around public perception a little. That's the only reason it was created. And so that's the sum total of what Whiplash and his brother had to say. We will link the YouTube video um, in its full, uncut, exactly how they said it uh, in the com- in this post for the comment, in the post for the podcast, excuse me. Yeah, but uh, yeah, go um, at the end of this. Go ahead and uh, give it a watch just to help co- uh, complement and supplement what we talk about here. But Simon, I know you had a, a couple of initial thoughts when it when it comes to uh, this whole uh, theory. Okay, so he does actually say in the uh, while kind of explicating his theory that he's taking these off very solid assumptions and that would be kind of the first place to start um so 
he sort of establishes this dichotomy between events that actually happened versus events that happened in Shepard's mind. What's to say that the entire thing of Joker getting chased and crashing down on a new planet, emerging with someone else, all the mass relays getting destroyed, wasn't also in Shepard's mind? And where does he see the entire like stargazer child scene fit in? Now, obviously, the addition of Shepard breathing for like a split second in the end of The Rebel is adds a lot more to the story than if it weren't there because it adds a lot more room for people to kind of think about this. But in that very sense, he kind of dismisses the indoctrination theory, yet he's doing a lot of the same thing that people in the indoctrination, supporters of the indoctrination theory did. They kind of contemplated, well, uh, maybe this is the reason for so these several things, just in a different way. So that's where yeah. I'm going to start. Yeah, and I think I'll just go ahead and say that, well, I think it's it's very well thought out, and it's definitely, you know, talking about 30, for 30 minutes about anything that requires a, you know, a lot of effort and research. But I will say, at the end of the day, it's still a, a fan theory, and the fact that it has to be based on these assumptions means it's not coming from the developer, and that's where I think my issue with it is. I th- just going back to the numerous discussions we've already had about this ending, uh, I I know my point has always been just the developers did what the developers did, and anything else is just assumptions we're making and essentially glorified fanfic. And if I may add a little bit of fanfic to the end of this, where I want to talk a little bit about his view of the extended cut DLC and how that was purely for business purposes to try and recapture a little bit of uh, their pretty raucous fan base. Um, I want to possibly suppose that that's why the two Bioware founders left on indefinite hiatus slash possibly just leaving permanently and maybe starting up new gaming ventures of their own Um, because maybe at heart they saw video gaming and the development thereof as purely a creative and artistic expression and that should the extended cut DLC be exactly what Whiplash's brother says it is, just a, a blatant way to try and appease gamers, infuriated gamers, and try and validate it a little, validate their concerns a little bit more, purely on the supposition that that means they will actually buy the next one, buy the DLC, ask their friends to buy it. They simply couldn't deal with that because that's not what they founded the company on. They found the company on making these amazing experiences with Kodor, Kodor 2, uh, the Old Republic, and now Mass Effect. And Jade Empire. Jade Empire as well, even before that. I mean, there are some very solid creative games there, and it would be unfortunate if that was the reason they were forced out. It was just because of sort of money-grubbing. Yeah. Um, so, Alex, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what did you take away? What were some questions or concerns that you had about when you went through this? Well, I mean... When I went through this, it just it reminded me of what happened when I, I played through Mass Effect 3. 
Um, and I was lucky, actually, when I played it, I had the chance to just sit down and for a couple of days just go through the entire thing and beat the game start to finish. And when I got to that last 30 minutes, uh, really just the feeling, the way I can describe it is it, it's confusion and emptiness. Uh, it was sort of like, say, you're, you're diving into a huge pile of leaves and you're expecting that comfy little landing that you're stereotypically supposed to have when you jump into a pile of leaves. But instead of that, you land on a rock and it just stops you and you're not expecting it and it's it's so jarring that it shakes you to the core. And while that may be overly dramatic in talking about a video game, it really was, it was just, it was shocking because looking back on the game in hindsight, the ending, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I think everybody freaked out, but once the dust sort of settled, the ending itself wasn't terrible, but it was frustrating. And it was frustrating because it just stopped. There was no real closure. You didn't find out what happened to anyone afterwards. It just stopped. It's like The Sopranos. And sorry, spoilers for an almost 10-year-old series at this point. But it, it literally just goes blank. And that's the end of it. And I think the Extended Cut DLC, I think... I'll, I'll, I'll give them some more credit than uh, Whiplash and his brother do. Uh, I'll say it was meant to fill some holes, but it, it really did nothing to fill the emptiness and the, the confusion that uh, it, the game left for me. As for uh, this theory that um, Whiplash and his brother have gone through, the, the things I took away from it were that a ruse is a, it's an interesting idea, but... By the time that they're fighting on Earth, we already know that several homeworlds have already been compromised. We've been to the moon of the Turian homeworld. We've seen that the Reapers are just bombarding that. And while we secured um, aid when we went back with, uh, with Grunt, we secured some aid for them. We know that the Turians were in some pretty deep shit. So we're, uh, you know, the Solarians were under attack. The Asari homeworld was essentially destroyed after you went there. I'm sorry, it's you know spoilers, but it's been it's been a just under a year now. But I mean, at that point, the homeworlds have essentially already been conquered, so there's no real point in the Reapers gathering everybody into this one place so that they can then go on to conquer everyone else because they've basically already done it. Right. Um. So moving on from the story aspect, um, I think one of the major things that we can talk about now and that we should talk about now is he spent only a little bit of time on this, but I think it was one of the more important points that we can talk about, which is Mass Effect 4 is coming. Shepard will not be the character. It will not tie into the events we've seen. It will somehow move the story forward. Forward in which direction? Because... We're, he's assuming this very nihilistic view of the ending, right? All of the fleets, the Corians, Geth, Krogan, Solarian, Turian, how many more can I rattle off? Batarian, Volus, I don't know. Uh, all their fleets are trapped, oh, sorry, are trapped in the Sol system because all the mass relays are destroyed. And the Reapers are just going around destroying everything else in the galaxy. And they're all stuck here, and there are no resources on Earth. And humans themselves are obviously 
just got their planet entirely destroyed by the Reaper assault. Uh, I guess the kind of where he wants us to go and presume is that they just all start fighting amongst themselves for what resources are left or somehow they start making the long, long, long trek back home or something. And that ultimately it's all futile because the Reapers will pick them off one by one, the end. Or has some... Thing bigger happened to the Reapers because of the Crucible firing. I know that Whiplash's brother says they were just driven back into dark space, but assuming that this happened, where is the setting for the next game if everything is absolutely oblivion? We don't have the mass relays. We don't have our intergalactic travel. We don't. We really don't have anything. Literally, this is going to be, I don't know, destiny. Wow, I think you almost just blew my mind there. But think uh, about it. Think about it. Everything's gone. One city left. Who knows? Uh, okay, as cool as that is to imagine, it's still a fan theory. So even though I guess I'm the creator of this theory, I, I mean it didn't come from the developers. So in my eyes and how I've always argued on this podcast, it's not true. But anyways, fun tensions aside, Simon, with that in mind, where do you think Mass Effect is going to be going? So where he says it's going to move forward, I don't think the next Mass Effect will move it forward. In the same way now that we see Gears of War 3 conclude the trilogy, they defeat the Lambent, they defeat uh, the... Oh my god, this is so embarrassing. What a Locust. They defeated the Locust. Tiss, 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 Simon. Everything is great. Anya and Marcus finally hook up. Carmine doesn't die. Everything else, there's closure. Where did they move forward from that? Well, they sort of went sideways. They went to Gears of War Judgment, which was just another retelling of a different portion of the backstory that we've only heard about from someone else's perspective, that being Baird's and Cole's. And so I'm looking at this uh, interview with one uh, someone from Bioware. It's in the official Xbox magazine. And the question is, looking to the future, what sort of Mass Effects are possible without Shepard? And the response was, without going down any specific path, you can think of many, many different areas throughout the IP, throughout the history, where there are large wars to be won, large battles to be had, and a lot of development to be done around where these races came from, how they came about. We have so much to draw from. I mean, that to me, Simon, that sounds like they're going back and just filling things in prequel-wise. I mean, sure, you have the, the Rachni Wars and then the Krogan Rebellion, um, or even more recently, the War of First Contact with the, with the Turians. Those are all potential uh, targets for a game. But as you say it's not moving the series forwards. It's just going back and filling in uh, things that they've already mentioned but haven't fully touched on. Exactly. Um, And so, really, what I think is it's going to just move sideways or backwards. It's not going to be this thing that moves it forward because I think that if Whiplash's brother is correct, so on and so forth, if these things pan out, then really... 
it's going to just say, everything's pretty much over. Shepard's done. Everything's done. The whole universe just went to shit. The Reapers destroyed everything. Yet, they don't tell you that. They don't tell you that. They leave it hanging and leave it to, for better or for worse, uh, the gamer's interpretation of what it should be. And I know that's gotten us all sorts of places, but if this is... I'm just going to, like, let's work under the assumption that this is the correct one, that everything went totally wrong. Then you can imagine what would happen with all the trap fleets, with the Reapers going through, picking them off. And do you think possibly that Bioware will ever come back to this and revisit something afterwards. I mean, if if we work with that assumption that that is what happens, I think it could potentially be interesting to play um, uh, a person, some alien, I guess in the next cycle, who's going back and discovering Shepard's things, and potentially that's the uh, the, the stargazer, that child, at the end, but I, I I'm not sure how they could really revisit the series at this point. Just with all the ire that's been stirred and with all the the frustration the fans have felt, there's really nothing they can do but avoid continuing the series, because anything they do will tread on someone's toes and it will upset a great number of people, whatever way they go. So I think that along with the fact that there is there is plenty of room for them to go backwards. I think those are the reasons why, as you say, they'll go sideways. Yet, um, Casey Hudson, I'm going to re- talk a- mention another article here, also from official Xbox magazine, which is uh, creative director Casey Hudson, really the brains behind Mass Effect, saying that Bioware already has a few ideas. So he says, and I quote, I think with each game, we throw forward a few threads so we know where we're going. We have lifelines to hang on to. But with everything else, we went right ahead and made things difficult for ourselves. And even more so for this, this referring to the Mass Effect 3 ending, kind of the problems that were raised, everything around the ending. Um, We wanted to end the trilogy really strongly, and that's the most important thing. And then we have a few ideas for things we can think about doing in the future. But we're okay with making it difficult for ourselves because the most important thing is giving people a great ending. We want to do more stuff with Mass Effect, of course, and I'm sure we will. So, um, yeah. See, I think that, yeah, I mean, the frustrating thing there is that I mean, what he says is he wants to give fans a great ending, and he wants to finish strong. And I completely understand that. That I'm finishing strong. I I would I would be disappointed if they did anything less than that because it would be really just it would be a disservice to the series as a whole because the series as a whole was fantastic. But as I mentioned before, just the the sense of emptiness and just un I mean uncompleteness isn't a word, but just no like no closure at the end. I, that's what frustrated me, and that's what I think prevents it from having just a great ending. Is that just stopping isn't writing? You know, that's not a great ending. That's not making a creative way to finish it. That's just ending it. And I think there's a difference between making an ending and just stopping. But what you said right there, what you just said right there, ties into something else that Whiplash's brother said, which was 
This might not be comfortable for most gamers, but it breaks the mold and gives you something new. Is this method of breaking the mold and giving you something new worth it? Is it is our reluctance to like it just because nerds have a traditional hatred of change and new things and that this is exactly why and that we should maybe embrace this for what it is? Or do you think there's something else? I don't know. I mean, I think I, I take issue slightly with, uh, I guess, saying that it's new and different and breaks the mold. I mean, just off the top of my head, without even having to look into this, I can think of two endings that basically ended exactly like this. The Sopranos and then Simon, a favorite TV show of, of you and I, Chuck, where it really, it, in a very similar vein, it just stopped. And you have no idea where it went from there and it didn't really continue. And so I don't think it's necessarily new. But I mean, maybe it, maybe it breaks a, a gaming mold, but I don't. I, I, I still think there's a difference between, you know, going, you know, being innovative and writing something that's different and just stopping. I I see where you're going with that. So, I think the last thing that we can discuss here, um, before we move on to our game minor segment, is talk a little bit more than about how realistic is this ending and whether or not the happy ending is always the one that we get and the one that we come to expect and whether the like a totally brutal ending that he says that we received here uh, is something new that we should look at, we should accept because if there are traditional precedents for very bad endings, so on and so forth, so... No, yes, I mean, I, I definitely do think that the, quote, good, happy, whatever ending is sort of the traditional trope, the cliche, and that's a lot of the reason why people don't not necessarily get angry, but are annoyed or left thinking, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's unrealistic with it. But I, I really, I have no problem with either the happy ending or a brutal ending, as you say, but... I think it really it needs to end. It needs to finish, in 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 a way. It doesn't. It just stopping is different. I know I'm harping on the same point, over and over again. But I think some closure. I would be completely fine if literally everybody had died at the end of Mass Effect Three. If they just gone through and showed what happened and sort of the outcome of it, and I've just been like, well, you know, it was it was tough. We tried or whatever. I mean, I probably would have been frustrated because I would have felt like, oh, well, what was all this for? But at least it would have made me feel that, whereas I just felt empty at the end of the game because there was nothing there, really. Right, so we look forward to hearing our listeners' thoughts in the comments. Maybe Whiplash can talk a little bit more in the comments about where exactly he was going. Maybe if we misquoted him, took him out of context... Uh, went in a little of a different direction than where he wanted us to go. But um, we'd like to hear his thoughts and all of your thoughts. So right now we're going to move on to a Game Minder segment. Yep, and uh, a couple of uh, pretty big games coming out in March, but there's not a whole lot of them. So Simon and I have decided just to group everything from the month of March all into uh, this one Game Minder segment. And uh, first of all, Coming out on the the 5th of March, we have the new Tomb Raider game, which 
I'm I'm really excited for because I think it's supposed to break the mold of Tomb Raider. Uh, it's generally just been boobs and guns. Hopefully now we'll see a, a real like a real person in Lara Croft. We'll see an actual character, and uh, that'll be coming out for the PC, the Xbox 360, and the PlayStation 3. Right. So what we've seen of it thus far is that yes, they have toned down both of those. And they've made it much more about emphasizing a lot of gritty reality, having to survive, struggling to survive, really a lot of tense moments about whether you're going to make it or not, and some pretty brutal death animations if you screw up in certain points. Um, But initial reviews are already out, and one of the major concerns that the uh, reviewers raised was that by the end game, uh, they had basically reached exactly what the goal and guiding principle of the game was against, which was having too many guns, being too overpowered, and just blazing probably too easily through the last part of the game where Laura Croft got too many guns. Yeah, something I wonder, Simon, is if this is in a way similar to uh, Far Cry 3, whereby about little over halfway through the game, you got to the point where you had access to most weaponry and you could play around with it. But in that case, it was fun because it gave you access to actually explore and do things with those weapons. So I wonder if, since this game possibly more linear than Far Cry 3, maybe it, it makes it boring just because it takes the challenge out of it. But might not be as bad a thing as some people say if it allows people to play the game in different ways or just screw around with it all right and that will be coming out on uh the the fifth fifth of march so march for xbox very soon as well as play as well as uh, pc okay um next we have uh gears of war judgment the uh as mentioned simon the the next game in the gears of war series uh as all the gears of war games are this is an xbox exclusive and it's coming out on march the 22nd Yes, so Gears of War Judgment, as I actually did all the talking about it in that last segment, it's the sideways tie-in to Gears of War, going back now to Baird and Cole's story, and apparently they're touting this new smart spawn system as a way of mixing up campaign a little more, that enemies will never spawn in the same place, it'll always be new and fresh each time you play. Now, I thought it pertained a lot more to multiplayer, but apparently I was wrong in that. It's more for refreshing the campaign mode. Um, But if they could somehow cross-apply that to multiplayer a little more, maybe have some guy spawning, like an enemy spawning very near you, always giving you that sense of danger, that hyper-alertness that you need, that would be very interesting. uh, Yeah. Kind of... And I'd definitely be interested to see this uh, in campaign, uh, especially in some games like um, what was it? It's Dark Souls, where it's it's all just muscle memory, just because you memorize where everybody is. Uh, same thing with say Modern Call of Duty Modern Warfare, with the um, I'm completely blanking on uh, what Simon. What's the incredibly hard achievement at the end? Mile High Club. Mile High Club, yeah, where you you literally just do it a thousand times and you memorize where everybody is and you just go through and pound it out. That's going to be really interesting in a, a way of just randomizing the game, giving a little bit more chance and making it more immersive and 
realistic. But uh, like we said, Gears of War Judgment, Xbox exclusive coming out on the 22nd of March. And finally, the uh, the last of the AAA titles coming out this month is Bioshock Infinite. So we know a lot of people super excited about this game. It's coming out on the 26th of March on uh, both the consoles and uh, uh, PC. Yeah, I'm literally just going to go find uh, my radio co-host, Ben Mazera, and drag him on and have him uh, talk about Bioshock Infinite for about a half an hour. Um, yeah, and as, as anyone who uh, was listening in and our year in review segment, Ben was very excited about this game. That was his, I think, most watched for game of 2013. So you didn't have to wait long. It'll, uh, it'll be here very soon. Right. And so if that is it, that concludes uh, this podcast. And so just a final reminder of all the ways that you can get in contact with us, comment below email us at game-insight at outlook.com, twitter.com slash WGG underscore SWU or RAM. Find us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, and um, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. And a final reminder that, uh, and thank you for Andrew Alliance or Uriah. He came on, visit his uh, website, and listen, check out his stuff at the show radio. So, yeah, we'd just like to say thank you to uh, Andrew for coming on. It was a pleasure to have him here with us. And uh, Simon had a, a great time talking. And uh, everybody, I hope you really enjoy this. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. We'll be right back.